Hey, you guys may be seated. Not sure what, there we go. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome, wonderful to see you all. Uh, we're going to get things set up here. Move this out of the way here for a second. There we go. There we go. Wonderful to see you all. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. I want to thank you so much for coming. Today, as Megan said, is our last Sunday in the park. Can we just give a big thank you for all that God has done this year? Uh, just a point of celebration. And here's the thing. Numbers aren't everything, but numbers are something. Would you agree with that? Numbers reflect God's movement in our lives and in people. So last year, our average attendance from June, July, August, things kind of shut down because everybody starts heading out of town. Last year, our average was just a little over 700. This year, June and July, our average was over 900. Can we just give a big thank you for what God has done there? Um, one of my really, actually, I have a couple really good friends who are amazing at baking. And when I say amazing at baking, like one of them makes some of the best cookies I've ever had in my life. The other one does these like really elaborate pastries, macaroons, and incredible stuff that you'd find in specialty bakeries. And while I won't say that this is the reason they're friends with me is because of those things, but I'll say it's definitely an added benefit. Um, I know for a fact, how many of you bake? Anybody here bakers? I know baking can take some time. In fact, especially with really, really intricate stuff, baking can take hours. On more than a few occasions, my friends have brought goodies over to my house, and I have a teenage son. If you have teenage sons, you'll all relate to this really well. And on more than one occasion, my son has come, seen these amazing food, devoured them, and then walked away. Not a thank you, not a, these are beautiful, just that's calories to put in my face and then move on. And now here's the thing. None of my friends do this for a thank you. They do it because they love baking. They love seeing the joy that baking brings on people's faces. Well, here's why I share this. Just like my son didn't understand how much energy goes in and how much time goes into baking. I don't know that all of you appreciate how much time goes into making sure we can do church in the park every Sunday. We couldn't do it if it wasn't for the many volunteers who get here early Sunday morning to set up to the worship team, to our food, all the things that take place. All of that is behind the scenes time that they love to do one because they love Jesus Two, they love you. And three, they love this church and love what God is doing. Can we give a big thank you to all of our volunteers? I also want to recognize, and they're going to kill me that I'm doing this, um, two of my favorite people at Zion are moving to Ankeny. Uh, Gary and Karen Lose, this is their last Sunday with us. They have been faithful, a, a faithful part of our family here at Zion for years. And we're going to miss them and love them so much. And I'll tell you, whatever church they're going to is gaining an amazing couple. Our loss is their gain. Can we give a thank you to Gary and Karen for the years of service? And then lastly, on a little bit more uh, somber note, nonetheless, uh, many of you are aware that Pastor Steve Bang did pass away last Sunday night. And uh, while... Here's the thing, it's a bittersweet thing. It's bitter for us. We love Steve. We're going to miss Steve. I so appreciated the prayers that so many of you have brought for us as staff, uh, our leaders, those who love Steve, but also for that community who is aching over the loss 
of somebody they love deeply who loved them well. I want to thank Jennifer Colby, who stepped up literally last Sunday, and I asked if she would consider preaching. Jennifer not only knocked it out of the park, but allowed the executive team to be over at that service to love on a community that's hurting right now. And so can we give a thank you to Jennifer? And uh, one last, and I promise this is the last thank you. Can we just give a thank you to Jennifer and the work that she did last week? Thank you for your continued prayers and the things that are going on there. It has not been an easy couple weeks, but God is still on the throne. Amen? And that's the thing is Steve is with Christ. And uh, I was talking to a friend who said I didn't get to make it to the funeral. And I'm like, here's the thing. Steve didn't care. Steve's in the arms of Jesus. And, uh, and he knows he's loved and he was deeply loved. So thank you all for your prayers for us and continued support. It means so much to us. Um, this morning, we're starting our fall series, which is preparing us as we head back into the dock next week. And as we go in, and again, just a reminder, 8.45 and 10.30 are the new times at the dock. The reason why we're doing this is our 9 o'clock service has been so full that we actually have had to turn people away uh, and we're running out of space. And so we're trying to find to get more people to go to the 10.30 and I know 8.45 makes it a little bit easier. But God has been doing some wonderful things and, and part of what we're seeing God do is a result of prayer, but also God is faithful to His church. Amen? God is faithful to His people. And... I know in the midst of all of this that sometimes there are some of you who love to come to the park. Now, if you have a church home, I want you to hear this. If you have a church home, especially here in town, please don't leave your church to come to ours just because the park is awesome. Your churches love you, but if you are looking for a church family, a church home, if you're looking for some place to come and worship, I hope you'll join us next week at the dock. I hope you'll continue to be a part of what God is doing here and know that God is doing some pretty remarkable things. But we know that the kingdom of God is so much bigger than Zion. Amen? And so our prayer is for churches across the world, but especially in North Iowa. We're so thankful for the churches and pastors and leaders who are bringing the gospel every Sunday. But if you are looking for a church, if you're looking for a place to call home, whether it be at the traditional service at 9 or joining us at the dock, we hope you'll consider being a part of us. All right, so who's ready for God to move this morning? If you're ready, say, I am. How many of you are ready for the Holy Spirit to speak through God's word, to reveal, to encourage, to challenge and inspire? If you are, say, I am. If you want more of that this morning, would you please stand with me and we're going to do our prayer of invitation. And I want to give you permission. If you're not a Christian, if you're not sure about this, or let's just say you can't stand up because it hurts, you don't have to stand up. You don't have to pray. But for those who do want God to move in their life, would you join me in this prayer? And it's just a simple repeat after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. Holy Spirit, help me hear what you have for me. Reveal where I am not trusting. Help me to love your word. Help me to live in your power, your presence, and in your purpose, Spirit. In the awesome name of Jesus, everybody said... Amen. And now would you remain standing as we read our Bible verses for today. We're reading through John chapter 6, verse 33, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, 
in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Jesus said, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and of life. And then Paul wrote to Timothy, his spiritual son, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. And then he wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. The word of the Lord, praise be to God, you may be seated. This morning we're kicking off our first series of the new, the new year for us as a ministry, our fall series, and it's called Becoming. And it's a, a multi-week series where we're going to be looking and actually continuing kicking off a whole year on the vision and values of Zion. Now, some of you are new here, are new-ish, and so you may not know this. About three years ago, we changed our vision and value statement from Zion Power for the Journey to Belong, Believe, Become. How many of you know that? If you know that, raise your hand, okay? That's our, that is our vision and our values, but it is not our mission. I want you to hear this. Every church in the world should have the same mission statement. In fact, I would argue that if your mission statement is different than this, you're not doing the mission Jesus told you to do. Now, you might nuance this a little bit to be more contextual or more appropriate for where you live, but our mission is the same. Our mission comes directly from Jesus that he gave all of his disciples after his resurrection. He said this, go make disciples of all nations. That means all people groups baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. The mission of every church is simple. Go out, make disciples. Sometimes that going out means going to places like Peru or Thailand or uh, other places throughout the world. But for most of us, this includes you, and I want you to hear this, you have the same mission. That going means go to your neighbor. Go to your workplace, go into your neighborhood, go into your community. We are called to go and make disciples. And a disciple is simple. It's simply a student or a follower of Jesus. And then we're called to baptize them. Baptism unites people to Christ according to the Apostle Paul. It also washes away sin according to the Apostle Paul. And it brings people in to the family of Christ. We then are called to teach people how to follow Jesus. And that teaching happens in a lot of different ways. Part of the reason why we gather as a church, preaching is one of the ways that we fulfill the Great Commission, by teaching people God's Word. Also through Bible studies, small groups, even social media today, simply doing life together. All of these things exist to teach people how to love Jesus love others, and quite frankly, how to love themselves like Jesus and how to think and act like Jesus would and calls us to in the world. But how we live out that mission differs. Churches have different visions and values of how they accomplish that. And for us, 
When we looked at our vision and our values, these three words matter and the order to them matters. They are, say them with me if you know them, belong, believe, become. And so about two and a half years ago, we committed to spend one year on each value. We started off through talking about belonging. Now, I've had some people say, Jason, shouldn't belonging come after you believe in Jesus? At Zion, we do not believe you have to believe in Jesus to belong to a church. Here's why. A church is just a gathering of people. To be a part of the family of God, yes, you need to believe in Jesus. But for many people, the first encounter they have with Jesus is encountering a community who helps them feel like they can belong in spite of their disbelief or the fact that they're not sure about Jesus yet. In fact, if we look at Jesus' life, he had an incredible way of making people who didn't know he was Jesus, God in flesh, feel like they belonged. Now, here's the second value. We are unabashedly, unequivocally about Jesus. Can I get an amen? We make no bones about it. There's no bait and switch. We exist because we believe and we love Jesus and we want you to love Jesus too. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are coming to the church and you may have questions about believing in Jesus. Well, you're going to hear about Jesus from here. You're going to hear it from my mouth. You're going to hear it from the people around us. Some of you are coming with church hurt. Someone, some of you have been hurt by pastors or leaders in the church. And maybe you walked away from church for a season and you're dipping your toe back into the water. And I want you to hear this. I'm not going to tell you that you won't get hurt at Zion. We worship and love and serve a perfect king, and that king is Jesus. But the bride of Christ, his people, his church, we're far from perfect. Can I get a big amen for that one? We are not perfect, and we may not be perfect, but we do strive to be healthy. We strive to be authentic, to be real, and that is something that as a staff, we really try to be a safe place by recognizing that we're all human. I'm human. People hurt each other, but Jesus has not hurt you. That's like, hey, why don't you go to McDonald's anymore? Well, I was really hurt by the cook, so I don't eat at McDonald's anymore. No, most of you still eat at McDonald's wherever it is. Why? Because you're going there for a different reason. When you go to church, you go to encounter Jesus. Jesus is the focus of the church, and that, that's not an excuse. Some pastors have done really serious harm, and I'm so sorry. And if I've hurt any of you, I apologize right now. I'm so sorry. But Jesus does not harm people. Jesus loves, welcomes, and changes people. And so we are unabashedly about Jesus, unapologetically about Jesus. We believe, hope, life, salvation, and freedom are found by putting your faith in Jesus alone. Well, this morning, we're literally kicking off our final value for the year this entire year is going to be focused on our third value, become. What does it mean to become like Jesus? And here's why the order matters. See, what you belong to and believe in will shape who you become like. Let me say that again. What you belong to and what you believe in shapes who you will become like. Whoever you hang out with, whatever you believe in, will shape the type of person you are becoming in this world. How you interact with your family. 
Now, you may not know this, but we try and make every series at Zion strategic. I don't pick series as an opportunity to just talk about something I'm personally excited about. We purposely choose every series to help us make disciples, to try and help you understand what it means to love Jesus and bring Jesus into your world and, and make the gospel accessible. And for those who maybe you weren't raised in the church, to help you understand the Bible. For some of you who are raised in the church, the Bible can still be pretty confusing at times, can it? So we approach things with a very specific mentality in mind, and that is, how can we go make disciples and teach people to love Jesus, act like Jesus? But all of it we do to fulfill the Great Commission from Christ. As I was thinking about the challenge of becoming, whether it be you, myself, our church, our city, our nation, here's the thing. The problem for most of us, myself is in included, is that if we're honest or brave enough to ask, we are all becoming something. It doesn't matter whether or not you mean to or not, you are all changing. That is part of life. And so here's the question I would ask of you. What kind of person do you want to become? What kind of friend? What kind of business leader? What kind of father or mother? And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the most important question you can ask yourself. What kind of Christian are you becoming? Who do you want to be over the next year? I think Jesus poses this question to us regularly. Uh, this is, a, and you've probably heard this joke before, but one day, a Z Kids teacher was hanging out with their kids during Sunday class and said, okay, students, here's the thing. I'm going to give you a riddle. What's brown, fluffy, and collects nuts and lives in a tree? And a kid boldly raised his hand and says, I, I think it's a squirrel, but I'm pretty sure because we're in church, the answer is supposed to be Jesus. <laughs> See, here's the thing. It's way easier to say I want to become like Jesus than it is actually to become like Jesus. Would you agree with that? It's hard to become like Jesus. It's not easy. We know the Christian answer is that we should want to become more like Christ, but how do we do that? How do we in our everyday life become more like Jesus? And the thing is, there's no magic bullet. There's not a one, two, three, just follow these steps and bam, you're more like Jesus. For those of you who are new or maybe you were raised in the church, but you really want to take this Jesus stuff seriously, the, author, uh, the authors of the Bible call the process of becoming like Jesus a big word. It's called sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. It simply means this. Sanctification means to become like Christ. It means you've been set apart, consecrated for God by God. That's what becoming like Jesus is. It's the process of becoming like Christ. And there are three important truths to know about becoming like Jesus. And they're found from the Apostle Paul written to the church in Philippi. Listen to this words. This is from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There are three truths about becoming like Christ we find in this verse. The first one is this. Becoming like Jesus was never meant to be done alone. 
That's why he says, my dear friends, becoming like Jesus happens best in community. It is meant not to be a private matter, but to be done with God's people. Second, becoming like Jesus is something that the Holy Spirit does with you. You actually have a part to play in becoming like Jesus. Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which meaning much like going to the gym, if you want to grow as a Christian, you have to exercise your faith muscles. You have to exercise salvation. But those last two words with fear and trembling are interesting. Some people, and I, I could be wrong on this, I want to be clear, but I don't think Paul is telling you that you need to work out your salvation because you could lose your salvation, like you need to be afraid, what if I do the wrong thing? I think to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, if you read the rest of the scripture, comes down to this. How many of you believe that sin causes harm in the world? Do you believe that? How many of you believe that sin scars people? That sin hurts. The reason why we're called to work out our salvation, at least this is what I think Paul is telling us, is listen, you were saved from sin, so stop living as if you aren't saved. Live with the knowledge that sin hurts people and God loves you. He doesn't want you to sin anymore. Not because sin will no longer allow you to be a Christian. We're saved by grace through faith. Amen? But sin does fracture relationship. It's like going, imagine going to the doctor and your doctor tells you that you're pre-diabetic. And he says, listen, unless you work out, unless you start eating better, you're going to get the full-on beaties, right? It's full-on diabetes is coming for you. Now, you might be motivated by fear of, oh my gosh, I don't want diabetes. So you work out because you don't want diabetes. But if you're married or if you have kids... What if the reason why you're working out isn't motivated by fear of getting diabetes, but fear of how diabetes will hurt those who you love? How the impact of that health crisis doesn't just impact you. We're called to work out. You don't have to work for your salvation. Salvation is a gift, but we do need to work it out with the Holy Spirit. And then the third truth is this. Becoming like Jesus is something God does to and for you. Listen to again what he says. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God, particularly the Holy Spirit, is the primary source and mover of God's work in your life to help you become like Jesus. So when you work out your salvation, you're working with a partner. You're not working out alone. How many of you lift weights here have ever lifted weights? Raise your hand. You ever done the bench press, right? When you lift heavy weight, you don't want to lift by yourself. You need a spotter. The role of the Holy Spirit is to be that spotter in your life because you can't do it alone. God is the one who ultimately makes you like Christ through the work of Christ and through the work of His Spirit. So here's what I struggled with for years. And, I, and I, I've... I want you to hear this because some of you may be struggling with this. I wrestled with asking the question, how does God do this work in and through me? How do I collaborate with God to become more like Jesus? And at the same point, don't make it about legalism or moralism. 
that the goal is I now have to be a perfect person or the goal is about behavior instead of relationship. I've wrestled with this. Maybe you've wrestled with that. How do you know what God wants you to become? I mean, isn't that really the bigger question? How do you know what God wants you to become? For many years in the church, church conferences, leadership, books have been written about vision and mission statements in the church, all about what it means to become like Christ. And I got to tell you, I've been to more conferences, listened to more speakers and podcasts and read more books than I can remember on the importance of having vision for your church and for your life. Now, here's the thing. Vision matters. We have a vision. Belong, believe, become. But is vision all that it's cracked up to be? Is the goal for you to have a vision for your life, or is there more? Often, pastors and writers will use this verse, and they always use the King James Version because it uses the word vision, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Or you could say it another way. If you don't have a picture of who and what you want to become, you'll make the wrong decisions and become something and someone you didn't want to look like. How many of you know what I'm talking about? See, vision is important. Now, when I was first starting off in ministry, I got invited. How many of you guys remember Franklin Covey? You guys remember Franklin Covey? I went to a Franklin Covey workshop. My church sent me to it. And it was, I was in this room filled with all these pastors and church leaders and Christian businessmen and, and women. And this leader gets up and he's trying to tell us how to have vision for our lives and how we need to orient our work schedule around our vision of what we want to become. And this is when I realized that I don't think he necessarily understood what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. He held up a pie on a screen. Actually, I think it was a transparency. That's how long ago this was. And he said, okay, I want you to picture your day. I want you to picture your life, how you spend the average day and the vision for your life. And he said, I want you to break down the amount of time you spend on each of these things. And so work was 50% of my day was dedicated to work. 30%, which is just about seven hours in a day, is sleep. 10% is family. 5% is friendship. 3%, 3% was for health, taking care of myself, going to the gym. And this is where he lost me. All of a sudden he goes, oh yes, and don't forget, you have the spiritual part of you. You have the faith part of you. Faith is very important. He's talking to a bunch of pastors. He should probably say that. And he says, so don't forget. And I think he thought this was like brownie points. He said, don't forget the other 2%. 2% goes to your faith. 2% goes to spiritual activity, going to church, volunteering. Now, here's the thing. Maybe you've done the mental math and went, Jason, I know that 2% of every day of a 24-hour period is 30 minutes. That seems pretty reasonable. 30 minutes every day. When was the last time you spent 30 minutes in your day thinking about Jesus, reading a book? Most of us would say, I don't know that I've done that. I can't say I've done that every day. So 2% seems like a lot. 30 minutes seems like a pretty reasonable vision. 2% of my life should go to faith. And if, if your vision for your life is that God cares about percentages, then this is a really good model. If the vision for your life, if you think what God looks at is the percentages of, you know, 50% work, 30% sleep, family, everything else, don't forget, don't forget Jesus, then this is a really impressive model. But I want to show you 
why vision according to God is not the percentage game you've been picturing. At least it wasn't the one I pictured. And I want to do it by sharing a story from the Old Testament. This is going to sound like a bad joke. It's two kings and a couple of prophets. There are two kings in the Old Testament. Now, Jennifer last week talked about this judge in the book of Judges, a guy named Gideon, and I'm not going to go into the whole story. If you didn't listen to the message, go online, go to, go to the Zion app, listen to last week's message. Jennifer crushed it. But she shared about a man named Gideon, and Gideon was called by God to step out in authority to kick the Midianites and Amalekites out of the promised land to tear down the altars of Baal, a pagan god, and destroy what were called Asherah poles. Now, you might be like, Jason, who is Baal and Asherah? In the ancient world, the Canaanite, two primary Canaanite gods were Baal and Asherah. They were both gods of fertility. God, uh, Baal was the god of rain and the crops, and uh, uh, Asherah was the mother god of motherhood and fertility and childbearing and and so what would happen is these other nations would come in and they would bring Baal worship. Now you have to remember, and we'll appreciate this here at Zion, most of the people in Israel were farmers. What's important to farming? Rain. Rain is really important. How many of you would agree with that? Rain's pretty important. Well, God doesn't have Asherah poles. He doesn't have icons. He doesn't have idols. And here's what would happen. In the ancient world, it was believed that if you had an idol, meaning a representation of that God, and you knew that God's name, that God would hear you. So Israel, God tells Israel in the Ten Commandments, first two Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before you and to make no idols. Israel was simply called to trust God, to pray to God, to believe that God would be faithful, and that if they obeyed Him, He would bless them. But the, everyone else around them believed that you needed idols and you needed other gods specific. And these nations would come in and they would pollute Israel. And Israel, instead of trusting God, wanted an idol to look like every other nation. This was a common thing that happened throughout Israel's history. Every time that God would get upset, it was for this reason. Instead of worshiping Yahweh, they would worship Baal and Asherah. Gideon kicked them out, burned down the idols, destroyed the altars of Baal. Now fast forward, here's what happens, okay? Israel becomes a nation. King David unites, creates the largest nation of Israel at one point. Everybody comes together. David dies. His son Solomon takes over. Solomon, and, and Megan preached on this a few weeks ago as well, Solomon was one of the wisest king until he was the stupidest king. See, Solomon wanted to increase his territory. And he would have said he did it to increase God's kingdom. But in reality, Solomon wanted a bigger empire. And the best way to do that was to go to other nations and build compacts, treaties with other kings and kingdoms. And the way you would do that, see, when it says that Solomon had a thousand wives, it wasn't because he had a lust problem, though he probably did. He primarily did it because every time he married another woman from another kingdom, that was building a relationship with that king. Here was the problem. Every kingdom that Solomon went to was not Jewish. And when you married into that kingdom, those women would bring their gods with them. 
So instead of worshiping Yahweh, Israel was worshiping other gods, Baal and Asherah and Molech. Now, one of the greatest ways that God revealed himself to his people was through his law. And and this is important to the story. See, God's law given through Moses, here's why God's law matters. And you may not know this. See, as, as Protestants raised in the Christian church after the Reformation, many of us think that God's law is bad. Actually, the Jews loved God's law. In fact, the reason why they loved it, and let me ask you, as a nation, what is one thing that makes the United States different than any other nation? Our laws. In fact, if you don't have laws as a people, you're not a nation. So when God gave him his law, which is in the uh, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah or God's law, the Jews saw this and went, we are a people, we're a legitimate nation. But here's the other reason why they loved the law. The law wasn't written from a king, it was written from God himself. The law was God's word to God's people. God had said, listen, you are my people. This is what it means to live, to be a part of my people. And they loved his law. Listen to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 30. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. That's the promised land, okay? But, this is an important, But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing in the Jordan to enter and possess. Let me break it down for you. God made a covenant with his people and said, listen, if you trust and obey me, if you live and do what I tell you to, The promised land is yours. I'll fight for you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will fight this battle for you. But if you don't believe me, if you don't honor me, if you don't put me above all other gods, if you don't obey my commands, I will not let you stay in the land and I will discipline you. Why does this matter? Well, when King Solomon, who built God's temple, married these other women... They brought other gods in with them, and they led Israel astray. Now, some people think that the Bible is racist because God tells his people to only marry Jews in the Old Testament. This had nothing to do with the color of skin. It had everything to do with religion. The reason why Jews were not supposed to marry people outside of Judaism is because they did not worship Yahweh. And whoever you married, you would bring in that God or goddess with you. This was not racism, it was ethnicism and idolatry was the question. King David wrote these words about God's laws. And he tried to impress them on Solomon. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. See, when Solomon was wise, it was because he was obeying God's law. But eventually, Solomon wanted to build his empire in God's name. Some of you are doing the same thing. Instead of actually obeying God, you're trying to build your empire, doing it in Jesus' name, but you've forgotten Jesus in the process. Now, let's fast forward. Solomon dies. Now, here's where the kings come in, okay? Solomon dies. 
and his kingdom is divided by his sons into Israel to the north and Judah to the south. What was once a unified kingdom is now two kingdoms. And Israel to the north, all they had was bad kings. One bad king after another. And eventually, God honored his promise in Deuteronomy and said this, because you're not obeying me, I'm going to destroy you. He wiped out Israel in 722 using the Assyrians. The Assyrian army came in in 722, wiped out Israel. But Judah to the south, which is where the capital is, Jerusalem, they had some good and bad kings. All right, so here's the first king. You ready for this? There was a king named Manasseh. Manasseh was one of the wickedest kings in all of Israel's Judah's history. Manasseh was so wicked that he didn't just marry other people. He actually went and got altars of Baal and placed them inside of God's temple, God's house. He put Asherah poles in the middle of God's house. He then started bringing in mediums and spiritists and other new age people and bringing them into God's house. Prostitutes were now part of God's house. And God was so angry with Manasseh, who was supposed to be a king over God's people, that he said, because of you, Manasseh, I'm going to destroy this temple and I'm going to exile you into Babylon. Manasseh dies. His son takes over. His son is just as bad as his father. Just as bad. His son dies and now you have his grandson. His grandson comes in and Josiah is actually unlike his father or grandfather. Josiah, it says, this is all found in 2 Kings. Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I want you to hear this. Some of you were not raised in godly homes. Some of you have generational curses in your family that have been passed down from generation to generation. Affairs, idolatry, adultery, gambling, alcohol, drug addiction, all these things. Josiah broke that cycle. You too, in Jesus' name, can break the cycle in your life of sin that's happened in your family. Josiah loved God. Now, because his grandfather and father didn't love Jesus or didn't love God, the temple went into disarray. And the temple got neglected. <clears throat> Every year, people would come together and the, the priest would roll out the law, the Torah, and they would read it. Well, not during the reign of Manasseh and his son. The Torah was actually lost in God's house. Now, let's think about that for a second. God's word was lost in God's house. Did you know there are churches today where God's word is not preached? God's word has been lost in God's house. It's the equivalent, and some of you might relate to this, and this is not meant to be a shame point. Some of you, if I were to say, hey, do you have a Bible? If you said, I know I do somewhere, that's the equivalent of what's just happened here. Josiah wants to rebuild the temple, to remake it to what it was. And he sends this priest named Hilkiah. Hilkiah comes in and he begins to restore the temple. And I want to set a scene for you. Hilkiah is one of, in one of the rooms of the temple. And he sees this scroll. Now, there were probably a few scrolls. They didn't have books like we do now. Hilkiah begins to open the scroll and he's a priest of Israel and as he's opening it, he begins to realize what he's unfolding. It's God's law. It's the word of God, which he hasn't heard in two generations. He's not seen in two generations. And Hilkiah sees this, and I picture tears welling up in his eyes, and Hilkiah realizing 
God's law has not been lost, it's been found. And he brings it to Josiah and he says, Josiah, we found the law of the Lord. And listen to what Josiah does. And I want to show you, Josiah sees the law and he gets down on his hands and face and he repents. He repents on behalf of all the people. All the people of Israel who had neglected God and His law. And he tells Hilkiah, I want you to go and destroy all the altars in the temple. Kick out the prostitutes. Kick out the spiritists, the mediums. And I say this with all love. If you're a Christian, you cannot be a Christian who loves Jesus and practice new age at the same time. You cannot do it. God's word hates, hates it. Hilkiah kicked out the spiritists and the mediums and all the rocks and tore down the, the altar of Baal and, to, and burned the ashes of the Asherah pole, burned them down to ashes and then sprinkled them on the graves of the ancestors. But here's the thing, God still brought judgment on Jerusalem and about 30 years later, God's temple would actually be destroyed. God allowed Josiah and Hilkiah to die before his people would be exiled. Josiah dies, Hilkiah dies, and God's people get exiled into Babylon. And now here's the second story. A guy named Nehemiah comes, and this is 70 years after the scroll has been found. Actually, 100 years after the scroll has been found. And a, prof, a priest named Ezra comes and he's been rebuilding the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians and Nehemiah's building a wall and Ezra stands and all of God's people, I want you, everybody look around for a moment. Everybody look around, see all the people. You see all the people? Picture this tenfold, a hundredfold. All of God's people are gathered around and they look at Ezra and they say this, Ezra! Read us the law. Read us God's law. And Ezra unfolds the scroll, and from sunrise until noon, all he does is read the word of God. And God's people begin to weep and mourn. And then Ezra and Nehemiah gather to the people, and they're standing on top of a high place, and they say, Listen, you don't need to weep anymore. God, God is good and merciful. This is a day of celebration. You have God's law. Now listen to this. You don't just have God's law. You have God's vision. How can I say that? Well, I want to bring you to my last or that verse that I shared from Proverbs 29. See, when, you, when the Bible talks about vision... That's not talking about the vision of your church. It's not talking about the vision for your business. It's not talking about having a vision for your life. See, the King James, in that, in that time when they wrote the word vision, what it really meant was something a little bit different. See, we tend to think of vision as something that serves me and me only or my organization. But the real question is not what is your vision for your life, it's what is God's vision for your life. And this is where too many pastors, teachers, and leaders do incredible disservice by proof texting, by not actually telling you what vision means. See, let me read it in a different translation. This is a more modern translation. 
Without God's revelation, his people will run wild. But the one who follows God's instructions, those are the happy people. You do need a vision for your life. You do need a picture of what it means to become. <clears throat> but that becoming needs to come from Jesus, from God's word. See, that 2% that that Franklin Covey guy said, here's where he got it wrong. God doesn't want 2%, he wants 100%. Did you know God has a vision for your marriage? God has a vision for your children. God has a vision for your business. God has a vision for your neighborhood. God has a vision for your health and for your rest. God doesn't want 2%. He is a God of percentages. He wants 100%. But here's the promise, just like he made to Israel. When you trust God with 100%, he promises blessing. I want to invite the worship team back up. <clears throat> I want to end with these last two things. See, how do we discover what it means to become? How do we actually learn what God's vision is for your life? And this is going to direct the rest of this year for us. And here's what I want you to know. If you need vision for your life, if you want to become more like Jesus, I hope you'll join us on Sundays and in community groups. We're going to be exploring what it means to become all year long. We're going to be looking at how does God care about our health, our mental health? We're going to care about how does God want, how does he have a vision for our marriages, for our life, our community, for our singleness? The very first gift that God gives you to give you vision is his word. God's word is central to our life. And I want you to hear this. The Bible is not a love letter to you. You are not the center of God's universe. God is. God's Word is a book that God gave us as a gift to reveal Himself, His character, and His promises. But it's also meant to reveal our sinfulness and brokenness and our need for a Savior. And yes, it does give us direction. That's why we need Scripture that is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, for training and righteousness. So that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's Word is God breathed through the Spirit. God worked through broken human beings through his perfect spirit to give us God's word. And it is profitable for your life. It critiques your life. It course corrects your life. But it also trains and equips you on how to do life for Jesus. God wants to direct you. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All of your life is spiritual. Everything you do is spiritual. The question is, is what spirit is directing it? Is it God's spirit? Now here's the thing. You have to choose to receive God's word and let it do its work in your life. This is why Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians, our verse, we thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. God wants to teach you how to love Jesus, how to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, how to love your neighbor as yourself, and yes, how to love one another. That's the church. Lastly, God gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to do the Holy Spirit justice because I got to end this because y'all are ready to go home. It's okay. You can laugh. You can even say amen. I know you're ready to go home. See, God's word with God's spirit brings power in the life of a Christian.
the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that wrote the Word of God through broken people, when you read God's Word with God's Spirit in you, in community, that Spirit begins to move and speak life into your life. It begins to give you a vision for your life. If you need a vision for your life, would you stand up right now? If you need a vision for your life, stand up. It's okay. Don't stand up if you're like, I don't need a vision. If you need a vision for your life, stand up. If you've never received Jesus and you want Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you stand up right now? There's already people standing. See, you don't even need to be embarrassed. There's already people standing if you need Jesus. Here's what I want to end with. See, the next year, we're going to be focusing on it as a community. What does it mean to become like Jesus through God's word, God's power, and God's people? Are you ready for it? Let us become the people that God has called us to be. God has a vision for your life, and it starts with Jesus. It starts with his word, and it starts with his people and power. Amen? Hey, let's close with this last song, and then we'll get the benediction. Let's come and worship the king.